cycling was my life. You know, school never never registered. Couldn't say that but you were a, you were a smarty at school. Nah. How, how was that? Smart Alec, yeah. But <laughs> the, nah, no, I, 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 I was definitely not. Hello, hello, and welcome to the pilot episode of the Offcuts podcast. I'm your host, Willie G, and thank you for listening in from wherever you're from. Now, it being the first episode and all, I feel like we need to do a little bit of housekeeping before we get stuck into it. A little bit about me. Of course, my actual name isn't Willie G. That's what uh, people refer to me by. However, my real name is actually Wilson. I'm from Brisbane, and I love podcasts. Really straightforward there, considering where <laughs> we're doing this. Uh, however... Uh, you'll learn a bit more about myself as uh, we have a chat to some amazing people and the, for lack of a better term, as I'm chewing the fat with, with some of the boys later on in other episodes. And speaking of chewing the fat, uh, throughout the majority of episodes, I'll be accompanied by a friend of mine named Troy. He will serve as uh, somewhat of a regular co-host. Uh, he'll be joining us in today's episode and we'll be learning more about him in the upcoming episode in two weeks' time. To get stuck into... I guess what the podcast is about briefly before we get into today's episode. Now, we all know some amazing people in our lives who've done some pretty cool things, but they haven't been given you know, their 15 minutes of fame. Well, on this podcast, that's what we aim to do. We aim to have a plethora of unsung heroes uh, and just have them join us and talk to them about their experiences, what, what they've done, of course, and really for us to have wisdom imparted on us, so to speak, and to... Do it in a very laid back and raw fashion, so to speak. You know, we let the mic roll. We don't edit out too much. We do a little bit, but we don't edit out too much. And we um, really let uh, these people express themselves and really talk about things that you w- wouldn't usually talk about during the day to day. So definitely conversations not set around the dinner table uh, is how I like to uh, imagine it. To get stuck into today's episode, now, today's guest. All I can describe him as is a living legend. Now, I'll give him his introduction as we get stuck into the episode, but without further ado, I want to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend, that is Alex Gomez. We are very lucky to have a legend with us today. Am I right, Troy? Yes, you are correct. Well, without further ado, we'll we'll get stuck into it. Our guest today is some would say a legend a legend an athlete a freak of nature in some and so as i mentioned last time i would describe him as the latino dave goggins <laughs> it's the best way to put it a man who just endures through the pain and just gets stuff done he is a father of four retired professional cyclist from time ago he is an australian champion he has raced over, over all over europe during his uh, cycling career He's an Argentine immigrant. He claims himself as an Aussie battler and just an all-around legend. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to welcome Alex Gomez. Wow, privilege. What a what an amazing intro. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel inspired by yourself? Well, mate, um, it's like the rise of the phoenix, mate. The battlers come out, <laughs> the of, battlers the- come out of the woodworks, <laughs> mate. Yeah, well, Alex, again, thank you for coming on. It's, it's a pleasure Good to, to have you here. Good there, to be. Uh, yeah. So you wouldn't by any chance be related to Guzman and Gomez, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great uncle, mate. We family feud, mate. We've kind of cut, cut ties. Yeah, cut off from the family business. Ow. It's got to do with the recipe, right? Yeah, it's a recipe. Ah, okay. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, well, 
to really get stuck into it, you were a cyclist, well, professionally for, for some time during your youth. Uh, how, how long ago was this? Yeah, look, I, I started riding when I was just before my ninth birthday. <coughs> okay. Pretty much did about 10 or 11 years of cycling and gave it away a few months before my 20th birthday. Oh, really? So what got you into cycling to begin with? I don't know. It's To me, it's not a common sport. I grew up playing rugby. Uh, that was the f- I'm pretty sure that was the first sport I ever played. My dad was just like, chuck on some boots, give it a go. But for cycling, I feel like you need somebody to really mentor you through that process. Who was that for yeah. you? For, for Christmas, we asked for a push bike and more of a BMX bike, you know, just to have mm. a bike. And you know, like, again, I was about eight and a half, first bike ever. And uh, my dad said, do you want to race bikes? You know, I've been a young young kid. The thought of racing was – and I said, yeah, for sure. Um, but that meant I had to get a road road bike, like a proper road bike. <clears throat> Could we just paint this picture? Was it Christmas morning, you've unwrapped this, this beautiful bike and you're just looking at it with a tear of joy and then your dad looks down at you, hand on the shoulder, and he's like, son – do you want to race? <laughs> <laughs> nah, it was pre it was prepositioned and so we um I don't remember the Christmas day but I do remember going down to uh, Omega Cycles down in Guildford and um and my dad picking up a red Omega push bike and that was it. That was the start of um things to come. Is that like the top of the line bike? Nah, okay. no, it was just a just a standard just push an average kick around bike, yeah. Okay. Good enough to race on, but yeah, nothing special. And what did you think as a child, like seeing that bike, your dad saying, let's race, what was your, your thought as a child? I, I had no expectation. So, you know, as you said, cycling was not was not a big sport in Australia. In Europe, it's mm. the second biggest sport in the in the in the on the continent. So so no expectations. Uh, other than Initially, I thought BMXs, right? And then when I saw the bike and I realised where I was going, I went, "Oh well, if I'm going to race, it's going to have to be this." And away we went. And never in <laughs> your mind did you think I'm going to be a professional oh. cyclist. You were just like, "Ah, oh, like we'll, we'll ride for fun, see how see where yeah, it takes it us." It was all fun. Okay, all fun. Yeah, nice. Like well, a well, it's interesting because to race you need to be part of a club. So we went. My dad registered myself and my older brother Leo down at the Lidcombe Auburn Cycling Club, out at Leppington where they're going to build this – no, not Leppington, out at uh, Badgeries Creek where they're going to build the, the new airport over there in Sydney is where they raced. So we went out there. He was 12, I was 9, and that was the sub-juvenile races. That's the youngest that they race. And we're riding along in our first ever race. It was like 10, 10 12K race. And we're coming into the last couple of Ks and, and I went up to the front – and said to Leo, hey, this is easy. There was just there was three of us left in the bunch. Everyone else had blown up. And and he said, just, just get back, get back, get back on my wheel. Anyway, we came down the hill, we went for the sprint. He was number one. I second most oh. so the first He told you to get behind him. I'm gonna win this one. So uh, and, and he said he said, Don't worry, mate, the, the finish line is still another K away. And then when I saw him with his arms arms oh. in the air, I realized the guy's stolen the race from me. <laughs> So anyway, so he, he finished first, I finished second, and, and from there we realised, man, this is a piece of cake, man. If we take this up, world domination. Like, <laughs> you so were the sidekick, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, so it's interesting. And then at 12, 
you actually go up to juvenile too. So he then went up to the next age group and I stayed back and, and I was there for another three years, so mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Numero uno. Yeah, so you were number one, one then, weren't you? So, so then it was, um, so it was, yeah, so it was great. That was our introduction to racing. It was fantastic. Good, good way to get motivated. Well, that's interesting <laughs> that you brought up that you and your brother started racing at the same time. You're nine, he's 12. What, was, what inspired your dad to, I guess, bring up racing again? Well, so he was a cyclist in Argentina. Oh, yeah? We had no idea. Like, we had no idea that he, he raced. So when he said, do you want to race, obviously it, that, that was the connection. And as soon as we started racing, it all came out. And, and my grandmother came a couple of years later, came from Argentina to, um, well, to visit, but she ended up living with us for a few years. And she brought all of the trophies and stuff and, and, that, that's, and photos. And that's when we realised, man, this guy was a bit of a, you know, a, a bit of a goer in the sport. Yeah. And so he knew, he knew a fair bit about cycling. So, and real old school. So, you know, just the training was hard. Mm. It was, you know, just drive you into the ground. And whereas the young guys of, of, of our age, you know, I guess that their training wasn't as intense as ours and that, that just propelled us to, to be very um, competitive because of the, the training and the, and the insights of my, parent, of my dad. Yeah, well, speaking of which, with the training, is there any like moments where you just think back on the, you know, just how gruelling and hard it was and just... Because we're like, well, you've mentioned this to me before, your, your father's a, a hard and some would say eccentric in some ways. What were some of his methods... I'd say to... So what, to what is his most <laughs> obscure method that he got you to do and you were like, my dad is a nutter. Yeah, what is he doing? Yeah, yeah. So, so in today's day, he would have done time in jail. Like, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. So he drove us hard and we had no idea, you know, what our competitors were doing in training till we got a bit older that we realised we were pretty hardened because of the training routine that my dad put us through. But... My dad's approach was alternative ways of teaching us principles. So my, my younger brother, Harvey, once was playing with electricity. Oh, and uh, for some reason, he just would not listen. What he'd do is he'd, he used to stick uh, metal objects into the PowerPoints. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and my parents you know, tried to teach him and he just wouldn't learn. So one day, you know, we had this, this faulty lawnmower he got my uh, my brother to hold onto the handles of the lawnmower. You know, see here he is, like the hand, oh, the no. handlebars are are at eye level. So this guy's about five at the time, and he says, "Hold onto that and hold onto it tight." And so then what he did, he he faulted the the mower. So when you started it, the electricity ran through the mower, and and he got electrocuted. <laughs> and so this this five year old bounced and was in tears, and he said never play with electricity and oh, dare I say never touch electricity again mate is that why he doesn't have any hair that's anymore? why he's got yeah. no hair <laughs> <laughs> wow he is pristine clean okay there is not a speck of hair yeah. it fried every follicle in the head <laughs> <laughs> no kidding oh. so, so with that in mind what was like something similar like in that department like the the, the prince a principle that he taught you that has stuck with you this day yeah the, the one thing that that he taught me was if you're suffering the guy beside you suffering just as much, if not more. And the number of races that, that I won as a result of that psyche, that, that way of thinking, you know, there was, there, was, there was a lot of them because of that. So when I was on the edge and I thought, oh, I don't have much more in the legs, 
that would come to mind and then I'd attack, he'd get on my wheel, I'd attack again, um, knowing that I was about to burst and sure that he'd burst before me and, and the result would go my way. So that was one thing that I, um, that I used that he taught me. Yeah. I mean, besides that story that you told of about your brother, do mind you, this was back in the, the eighties, like late seventies, early, early eighties. You did say some of the methods that your, your father did use would have gotten him time in jail. <laughs> Is there one that you... Anyone that would, comes to mind. Come to mind. Something that wouldn't incriminate him even right now. I'd, I'd rather not because the guy's coming towards the formative years of his life. I'd hate for him to, <laughs> to get subpoenaed uh, to have to front up a court. So, yeah, he, he was old school discipline, mm. very old school. Like, you know, steal money, free warnings, the fourth warning... The knife comes out, cut your fingers, you know, thus the missing little finger. <laughs> but, uh, but just just real hardcore. But, but you know what? In today's day, yeah, like it's, it's brutal. It's, it's not right. I'm not saying it's right. But, man, it taught. It taught us a lesson. And we, and we you know, maybe it was a top sign of the times and that's the way you raised your kids. Maybe you didn't, but it worked for us. You know, your father helped train you ever since you were nine years old, right? I imagine seeing you in races, training with you, he'd be quite protective and quite nurturing with you, right? Do you have any any moments where like your dad was just really protective over you um, in a race or in a training moment where maybe one of your training partners, I don't know, said something to you that he didn't like? Dad was renowned in cycling in Australia. He was actually well known. He was well known for being a spectator, not for being the cyclist. Because, if he, you know, he was an ethnic guy. His English is pretty <laughs> average. And I'd race by it and he would say, go a lick, go a lick, like go and lick. And like, oh, who, who does he want? Who's licking who? Because my dad would just scream out from the sidelines. He, he would always follow the race. And, you know, the police around that are telling people, you know, no cars. And my dad would always find a way to follow the race and get behind it and tell his story. I do remember... Um, out training once. So we used to, my dad eventually ended up getting a little motorbike with a roller on the back and we would kind of do speed work behind the motorbike. And uh, before he got the motorbike, he used to occasionally, if we were, if we were riding in an area, it was a bit dangerous because we'd ride on main roads, right? Came along and was behind us in the car while we were out training. And uh, on this occasion, it was my brother and I and we're riding, you know, a bit like the motorbike riders, you ride in between the cars, right? Mm-hmm. When you get to a set of lights, you you're riding between the, the cars and you get to the front to the light. As we were going through between the cars, this guy opened the door, purposely opened the door on me and I hit the door and crashed. And then when I hit the door and crashed, he started screaming out profanities. You know, oh, here I am, I'm, I'm nine or ten or something. Yeah. And, my, and this guy uh, blindsides you. He did it on purpose. <sighs> and he's screaming, he goes, you shouldn't be out. I don't remember, but I remember he, he, perp- he intentionally did it. Little did he know, there was the mad Latino in the back seat in the car behind, two, you know, two cars back who saw it happen. And here I am, you know, getting myself up off the ground, you know, a little bit frightened by this. And before I knew it, I, my father had run from behind and grabbed this guy and started to just, like, belt into it. And this guy's thinking... Oh. What's going on here, mate? I'm, I'm having a fight with a two with a with a nine year old. Where's this Where's this fifty year old guy come from? Anyway, he jumps in the car and, and he's trying to close the door, and my dad's 
kicking him. He's like corking his leg, kicking oh. him like crazy. <laughs> and so he's trying to close the door and he finally closes the door and my dad's got the glass, like the windows a little bit and he's re- – and I'm thinking the, the whole windscreen's going to come down. <laughs> oh, no So he, he winds the window, he locks the car and then – I don't know if you know, there used to be these um, uh, steering locks, that you, these steel things that used to – Lock your oh, steering yeah, wheel with, yeah. yeah. And you've got a key and you lock your steering uh, so no one can break, so if they drive, you know, it doesn't allow the steering to turn. So I remember because we, we, I picked myself up and went to the side of the road and I was watching this in front of me unfold. And my dad, no words spoken, but all fury, mate. And anyway, he, um, he th- and then I saw the guy grab that and he says, I'm going to, you know, smash you with this. And my dad stepped back. He opened the door and my dad went him again. And this guy was holding this thing in his hand. And anyway, the, the guy obviously realised there was no – he hadn't I – don't, he had no idea who this guy was. Oh, dude. Come out of nowhere, it's bashing the heck out of him. Anyway, and what was interesting, the lights went green, the cars went, but the lady in front saw it happen. And so she's like, I'm watching this. No, so <laughs> she she parked the car. She, so he had nowhere to go. There was gas going. And so she was he – he was stuck there. Getting beaten oh, by this sucks, guy, bro. and then she just gave him the thing. The, the ladies attended to us and said, "Are you all right?" And anyway, and and everything ended up, and he went back to the car. And he goes, "Okay, boys, continue <laughs> the training. Away we go." <laughs> like it was like action. You know. <laughs> so he was just a man of, um, oh. you know, a calm, placid, loving man. <laughs> but don't mess with his little chickens, mate, because oh. he will. He just would unleash. Unbelievable. <laughs> Wow, that is insane. He did teach me, if you're going to get into a fight, make sure there's only one punch thrown and you're the one that throws it. One hey. punch, game over. But, yeah, he's just no fear, mate. No fear. What an absolute legend, mate. You know, your coach wouldn't have done that for you. Your dad, mate, all day long, mate. You know what's something that comes to mind, I guess, in our generation, there's a lot of young, there's a lot of youth out there who don't have a positive influence in their life, uh, let alone having a father around that can teach you um, from things that he's learned, right? How do you feel that you have learnt from your father and have passed that on to your kids? <laughs> We do wow. have one of his sons in the and studio. And would you say that moment. you've would you say that you've got a positive or you've had a positive influence on your kids' lives? Look, I I don't know. Time time will tell. I, I, I don't think so. You don't think you do. I mean, I've never gone to my dad and, and told him all of the the wisdom that he taught through his his methods. Um, or the or the wisdom that stuck with me uh, through his methods. And you don't know with your kids whether you know, and, and and I think I grew up having to, you know, temper them because it's in a, you know, as much as it worked for me, it's it's it wasn't really the right way to mm-hmm. go about certain things, and so it's it's you never know, you never know the influence that you have on people, good or bad, until you know time down the track, and and you know you're all learning, right? You're all trying to. There's no handbook to raising kids, and so uh-huh. you just you do what you think's right, and and, and often it's. You're part of your upbringing, and that's what that's what you turn to when you're, you're doing stuff you've never done before. So, so your father's <laughs> at the door right now. What is one thing that you would say to him? Um, I guess thank him for in your youth raising you as a as a cyclist, but also just as a kid, 
a stand-up young man, what would you thank him for very specifically? As it, well, You know, I have never noticed it, but my wife raises it and, and he's convinced that, that my cycling upbringing, my cycling career for, for you know, which was not until word. 19. So it wasn't really a career, but just my cycling experience, she believes that that's been part of the man I am today in terms of my commitment to seeing things through and what have you and, you know, my, my will to win. I, look, I don't know. I just think that's who I am. But I would say to my father, and this is the one thing, uh, that my dad ran his own business, was a sole, pe- a sole uh, income earner, he would uh, he would jump on planes to come and see us race around the country, uh, not so much internationally, but but around the country. He you know he would go to the national championships and all off his own cost, and we would travel all over the place in hotels and that and that was a hundred percent paid for by him. So that that opportunity, uh, you know, essentially made who I am today, my way of thinking and my approach. So. I would – that's the one thing that I see that he taught me that, – sorry, that I'm grateful for, that he sacrificed a lot. And in turn, my mum as well because it wasn't just – Yeah, absolutely. Whilst my dad was the one that travelled with us, my mum was at home and my mum accepted the funds being spent in that way. So, um, you know, a lot of sacrifice in, yeah. in allowing us to, to be – to do that sport. That's very inspiring. You know, it's just, it comes to mind, you've talked a lot about this sacrifice and, you know, having to, you know, not just yourself, but with your parents and um, seeing that you, you were very successful. Just question, what are some like notable accolades that you, you've achieved uh, during your, your time in your, in your career? Uh, well, in cycling, again, I, I gave up cycling at the age of 19 and a half. You, you leave the juniors at, ni- at 18 in fact, at 19, you, be, you become a senior or an opens, uh, you know, elite uh, racing amongst open, uh, it's opens, so to speak. Right. And so I gave it away early, but, you know, in my junior years, I, you know, won national titles, um, represented the national team on several occasions. Where did you represent School. them? I represented them on, on the track, oh, sorry, on the, on the road. And, and later on in like my last year, I was in the national team and in the, the squad for the Barcelona game, well, the Barcelona games, about Olympics, and uh, ninety-two Olympics. So, oh, so, so right at the end is where I joined the national team. But um, so you were at the ninety-two Olympics? No, I was I was off on a humanitarian quest at, oh. uh, when that was on. But there was a squad that was selected a year or so before. Mm-hmm. I think there was about sixteen of us that were selected, and from there they had to well. You know, bring it down to about five who would race the road race and time trial and, and that. So, but I was young. Like my my ambitions were Atlanta '94. That was where I knew '96. Uh, sorry, that was the tour, the uh, the Olympics that I was really going to be at my at my right age. I would have been in my early twenties. Whereas at nineteen twenty, I was just way too young for that. But but I was in the national team then, and then. Um, and, and as a junior, the majority of your racing is done in the country. So it's all nationals and, you know, cyclists, national cyclists of the year, stuff like that. They, they would yeah. be probably the, the bigger achievements. So nationalists meaning like 
Australian cyclist of the year yeah. in your age group. That's fantastic. That's pretty cool that, that, have that under your belt that you were you were a national champion. Absolutely, man. Because that, that, that ring bells in your head right now when you're uh, a you national look. champion. Well, well let you me know, say it again. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> national champion Alexander Gomez stepping up on the pulpit, raising the trophy. Yeah, champagne's look, flying. <laughs> yeah, look, and 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 that's as probably as as big as it gets for a young you know, a young cyclist. Now it's probably different. Now there's more money, and you know the young guys get to go overseas earlier. And wow. Speaking of overseas, what, what was your experiences like over in uh, Europe? Did you find similar success over over there, or, or what was the difference? I'd say compared to Australia and Europe. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you think you're good, and then you go overseas. You know, you think you're a good soccer player, and then you go and you know you, you go and play in Spain or Italy, and you realise you're just an average. But I was I was pretty young, so I I went over at 18. I effectively finished my HSC in November and in January I jumped on a plane and went to Spain and I went over there with, uh, with a mate who was a couple of years older than me and we we essentially rocked up in Madrid and we were told by his father that there was a race coming up. It was right at the beginning of the season because <clears throat> it was, you know, snow had just dissipated and it was still quite cool. So we, we rocked up to the first race. We rode to the race because we had no no support. So everyone rocks up, you know, in a car. So we rode to the race and uh, turned up, signed in, did the race. It was a good ride for me. I, I finished third in the King of the Mountains and, I don't know, top 15 or so. I got money anyway. They pay the top 20. In, King, in King of the Mountains, that like, well, what's what's that? Is that like, um, in a, and it was a one day classic race. It was probably I don't know. It was about one hundred and fifty k or whatever. And 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 throughout the course, they they have a couple of climbs, and at the top, they'll have a, a line. The first guy over gets you know eight points and three and two or one, and uh, and there was I think three or four climbs, and they total them up, and whoever's got the most points wins KOM. So, so I got third in that and finished in the top. Um, well, within the top twenty, I don't remember what place I got, but it was. But we got paid. Mm-hmm. Did your friend get paid? No, no, no. He blew. He blew up. I don't know what happened to him. I don't remember. But how much are we talking here? Oh, it wasn't a lot of money. Like we're, we're talking Spanish amateur racing. But but even still, you rock up to a race in Australia, and there's twenty five to thirty. In, you know, in a club race, in a national, in a big national race, it'd be 50, 60 riders. You turn up there and there's 220. And out of the 220, 100 of them could potentially win it. So the competitions, there's a lot more people. It's like soccer on a weekend. Everyone rides bikes or kicks a soccer ball. So, so, to, so, to do, so from that event, I got approached by a team who said, you know, where are you from? What's going on? I saw you going, oh, great, great. Do you want to join the team? We'll, we'll put you on the team. I went, yeah. So so from then on in, I got picked up and I got driven to races. <laughs> your friend's like, hey, what, yeah. what about me, guys? We're, we're, we're a package deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You we take did. him, you take me we too. Did. <laughs> we did do that. I said, I'm with my mate. Can we, uh, can we do something? Because, you know, his father and him helped me get to Spain because he was Spanish. The father was Spanish and he spoke fluent Spanish. Helped you as in like they helped. Pay for your ticket, or no, like no, no. Just he just, you he, he just helped us find a race and, yeah, and got okay, us right. started and got, mm-hmm. got me a place to stay because I, I went over there as a 
uh, uh, just off off the bat, like I, I was, I had no team or nothing. So I went off just with him, and so he got me a place to stay, and found me a place to live and all that stuff. And so you know, so yeah, so he it came. Tells along. a lot about your character that you know you weren't just going to be like, oh, I made the team. Sorry, mate. You know, <laughs> it was nice hanging around, but I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so he he was probably a B grade, maybe a low level A grade rider in mm-hmm. in, in, in Australia. So over there, he he got we got walloped. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we suffered. We all suffered. But yeah. but um, would you say you're like an A grade in in Australia oh, standard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. High high A grade or well national champion. Yeah, so, yeah well, yeah, I guess yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I'll chew my so, lips. So yeah, so so like so that and that was my point. Going from being one of the you know the best in Australia to going to Europe, you're just another number mm-hmm. to a large extent. And so from there, I, I joined the um, – I got sponsored by a team who uh, was an optical company. Ferry Optics was their name. They sold glasses. Okay, and they, I was wearing optics. That's, that's eyes, yeah, isn't it? They had a chain. They had a do chain cycling? They had a chain. It was a bit like uh, OPSM. They had a chain of yeah, things okay. throughout Spain. And, and they, they effectively paid for all my clothes, subsidised some of my uh, rent. Did you and, buy yourself a nice suit? Uh, no. <laughs> it was it was it was very very poor living. You didn't yeah, live okay. like a king. You just got by. So and then and and then I had a team. So that first race, if I blew a tire, I was on the side of the road and having to change my enti- my own tire. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I had a team who was following me, who was after me. And from there, so I raced with them all through Feb March, and towards the back end of March, there was a big. In, uh, it was an international race, but it was a, it was a Spanish classic. It was one of their top ten major uh, amateur classics, and and my team was racing in that. How many people are competing in this race? Do oh, you think it's about two hundred? Two hundred. It's people. a big. It's a big okay. bunch. And if you think about two hundred people on a road, mm-hmm. most people never see the front of the race. Right. You just there's just too many people. And back in Australia, the biggest race that you'd ever raced. How many people were in that? Uh, Rarely got more than until that to that point. Rarely more than fifty, sixty. Oh wow! In my age group, when I got back and I was racing with the seniors, yeah, you'd you'd get eighty or so. But Mm. yeah, not 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 a lot. So there there I was racing in Spain, uh, earning pittance, just surviving. My Mm. dad was still having to send me a bit of money just to pay the rent and to survive because you don't get paid a lot. Like I think my fifteenth spot paid me like a hundred Spanish pesetos, which before the euro so it, that, that would pay a, a week's rent so it wasn't a lot it wasn't enough to get me living but but i raced this international classic the ibudero it was called and it was it was a killer of a race so the last guy that one of the guys that won it years prior was a guy named miguel Ingeran who went on to win five tour to france tours to france so so it was a it was a race where people scouts and people came and watched and so here i was in this race and I just buried my head and just sucked onto wheels and just tried to hold on to the bunch. And there was these big crosswinds and, and you just get into this, you know, pocket to try and get protected from the wind so you can, you can survive. And anyway, um, about, a, I don't know, it was a 180k race or whatever. 100k in, I, I, I finally, it slowed down and I looked up and um, there was about, 20 riders in front of me, I looked back and I was the last rider. That was it. Oh, no. So the, the 180 bunch or whatever was down to 20, well, the leading group. So here I was in a major classic, 18 years of age, in a, you know, essentially in the leading group. And um, 
Anyway, I finished in the top 10 in that race. And from there, the national team was touring uh, Europe, the Australian national team. And I get a call up and say, mate, you're in Spain. Do you want to come and join us? And um, I jumped at it because the national team gets to race all the big classics, whereas I was racing in a second-tier uh, amateur team and, uh, you know, you get to race big Spanish races but but not international. So then they, uh, they paid for a, a train ticket from Madrid to Ghent in um, – Belgium, and I, I was on the national team, and there I was. You are in Belgium? I was in Belgium racing with the Australians, yeah. So oh, I was racing dude. with the Australians. So we were racing all of the, the big classics, racing with the pros, racing with amateurs. Like, it was just... Is there any noteworthy people that you've raced with? Or raced like against as well. Yeah, yeah. or yeah, against. Yeah. So the, the first race I did, uh, or first or second race I did, we raced a couple of weeks in Belgium, and here I was. There's, there's a major pro race called Ghent-Wilvergem. You win that, and you're 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 a top class pro rider. And we there was a race just before that event that we raced, and it was pro am. So back then, before ninety five or whatever, you didn't turn pro un, unless you had a contract. And and I didn't want to turn pro because I wanted to race the Olympics. Once you're a pro, you're not allowed to race. You can't represent Australia in in, in the Olympic Games. That oh, was really? back then. That was oh, back okay. Then. Now, now it's different. So, okay. so I, I, so here I was racing in this race, and 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 I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but a guy named Greg Lamond. Greg Lamond won three tours de France, American first American to win the tour. Was racing beside. Here I was racing, you know, eighteen year old with these these world class riders around me. There was a Stephen Brooks from Holland. There was a guy named Dirt to Walt who won, who finished second or, or I think he won the world championships a year or so later. So here I was as a just a nobody, mate, from Australia, <laughs> from, from Guildford, uh, Sydney, racing with the number one people in the world, you know, the people that you see in the Tour de France. And so that to me, and that was a race, I mean, I don't remember, it was a shambles. The race was just like from start to finish, it just was, it was on. And I don't know. But th- that to me was, it was an eye opener to how, how much I needed to progress to get to there. Yeah. I mean, I was young, yeah. I was 18, yeah, and these right. guys were 27, 28, 30, so... You know what that's like? It's almost like a Toyota Corolla pulling up next to a McLaren. All these McLarens are around you and you're just sitting there like, the boys, yeah. rev the engine, guys. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Little to know the Corolla's got some punch on him. It yeah. does. It does. Wow. So that, that was my, that, you know, that, they were the, the big guys. I raced, I, I raced against um, the, the biggest guy who made it and I actually raced against who was my age was... Um, Jan Ulrich, Jan Ulrich, the German, the German. He went on to win the Tour de France. He was the youngest guy to ever win the Tour de France, and he went on to win the World Championships the year I was um, a junior at the at, you know, racing same time. So he was the, he, he was an animal back then. So mm-hmm. so yeah, look, it was an experience that it just it fueled the desire to want to turn pro and race in the big leagues and, and go there. But that 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 was it. And then from then, I, I raced the rest of the season in Europe with the Australian team, and we we toured pretty much the majority of Europe. So we raced in Austria and uh, we raced the, the Amateur Tour de France, which was at the time was in like the Yugoslavia area. And interesting, they moved it out of there because I was there the year that Yugoslavia were, were in war, you know, when Croatia yeah, and yeah. Yugoslavia, well, Croatia and Serbia became separate. Yeah. They used to be Yugoslavia. And, and we were in Italy and we could hear the the, the, the bombs and all that stuff oh, going geez. off. So, but yeah, that was ninety ninety one. 
91 okay. was when we were there and um and yeah pretty much raced you know any major amateur classic or tour we, we got invited to as a national team we got invited to all of those things and that's what i didn't get in spain so it was a great kick along an opportunity for you it was there anything crazy that happened during races that i guess the general public wouldn't know like what happens behind closed doors when you're in a race and the camera's not around team's not around and it's just it's you and and your teammates and your competitors yeah look at this there's peeing and pooing while riding <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty disgusting. That's fair. How do they do it? Like, like what are they, Superman on the bike and then just dropping it, pulling it out, throwing it? Like, what happens? So, so in um, in cycling, generally, if the race is on, can't stop to take a pee, right? So yeah. usually you'll you'll call for your teammate unless it's going slow. If it's going slow, you'll you'll or pull over. You'll take a pee, and then a couple of your teammates all together will help get back onto the group. But in my time, when we when we had to pee, we'd just call a teammate and you'd ask your teammate to push you while you, you know, you have your leg, because you can't pedal, you get your leg out and you pee. Um, and you just pee out the side. Now, poo, this is a true story from uh, a pro race. It never happened. I never saw it, but I remember reading about a guy who, um, who had to poo in a race. And have you seen the little cycling hats? Yeah. That, that flick up at the front. Yeah. You've got the little cap bit there. Uh-huh. In cycling, there's a lot of spectators, and and when you throw out, <laughs> when you throw out hats and bottles, you know all the kids and all of the people run for all of the merchandise, right? <laughs> so this was a, this was a story where there was a, a a guy, and I have no idea which cycle it was a pro race, and they're racing along, and the guy had either the runs or something, and had to go to. <laughs> usually, you got to have the runs to crap. Usually, you can hold a yeah right solid. So he took – back then they never had helmets. So he, he'd have his cycling hat on, cap, took his cap off, shoved it down the back of his nicks, crapped into his cap, and then wiped and threw it. <laughs> and the spectators ran for the merch. <laughs> so you can, ima- you can imagine the great delight of these. It was a drive-by shooting. <laughs> Every kid was marked. <laughs> so, I mean, they're the kind of things that – I mean, it happens. There's obviously a lot of stuff that happens, but um, that's what happens when you're in a race, mate. You, you can't stop. Oh, that's dude. crazy. That is, oh, I never <laughs> thought. They say it's a classy sport, but mate, ah, oh, that's there's nothing that, that, that's classy. Feral behaviour. That sharding on a child. <laughs> <laughs> they were running for. They were lapping it. Yeah, yeah. And then and, and on top of that, two or three people grab the hat at the same time and pull. <laughs> I want it. I want it. And then they realise and they let it go and goes flying. And there's always that innocent bystander, the yeah. old lady in the wheelchair that gets smashed with it. Oh. Yeah, you mentioned about like you no know, drugs and alcohol, especially in you know the cycling world. I saw this question be coming, but the the drug culture, especially in cycling, it, it's got a pretty infamous you know reputation, especially thanks to good old Lance Armstrong. But uh, you would have definitely seen stuff like that during your time out in in Europe, especially. That was the part that I um that I was oblivious to as well. Everything we did was clean, and it was hard work. The thing that I realised is so is everyone else. Everyone else at that level is working hard, harder or as hard as you. And so it really then comes down to your training technique or your just natural ability. 
And if you've all got a somewhat natural ability that's similar and all of the training techniques are somewhat the same, then what separates you from the next guy? And that's where drugs is just a yeah. part of it. Unfortunately, and th- this was in the mid-90s, early 90s, where the drug culture, it was just unspoken, but it was, it was, it was understood that people would take in drugs. And, 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 uh, and my team, they took drugs. My team actually took drugs. There was no federation that was testing them at all? No, no, there was drug testing. Drug test. How'd they get away with it? So, so they, well, classic example. Here we were, like my first exposure to it was in Spain. Here I was, we we're in this race. It wasn't an hov- overly notable race. It was, you know, it was about a thousand bucks, two grand to win the race, right? So we're not talking like a big race. Here we are on the bunch. And um, so this is before we had headphones. You know, you'd go back to the, the team director and he would give you directions on you know, what's going on in the race. And so, there were two guys in a breakaway out in front and, you know, I don't know, it's 40, 50K to go. It looked like that's where the race was going to be, that, that's where the winner was going to be. And not every race gets drug tested. Oh, but, I see. But the team director gets a notice ahead of the um, – during the race at random, there will be drug testing at this race. And as soon as that notice came, those two guys miraculously blew tyres or had a, had a cramp and pulled out of the race. So well, back then, the first three got drug tested and then won at random. Okay. Oh, okay. oh, well. Won at random. So if you didn't finish, or one or two at random, if you didn't finish the race, you didn't get tested. So those guys, once they heard there was drugs, they'd pull out. So I mean, that was the first, and I remember thinking, whoa, what, what happened to that? And then my team doctor said, well, got notice there was drug testing. So that was my first realisation. Wow. I'm riding around a bunch of Junkies, but <laughs> everyone around me, and then to add to it, Come and then on back. <laughs> and then and then and here I am thinking, oh wow, this is this is bad. And then I was living in Belgium with a, a family who um, uh, who looked after me for a little while there, while, while the national when the na- national team went back to Australia, I stayed back in Europe and I stayed in Belgium. And so the family I was there is top guy. I'm not going to say his name because this might make it back to Belgium and he might. Hear. <laughs> but I, I was <laughs> living with him. Gift. And his son, his son was about 24, 25, an electrician, just a, a, weekend, a weekend cycling battler, right? Here I am living in their house, sharing the bathroom. I go to grab a towel and there they are, a needle and some kind of drug. And I approached him and said, what the heck is this stuff? He goes, well, that's, that's how I finish my races on the weekend. So this guy didn't have time to race. He was just a, he was a C-grade rider. But he, he was injecting uh, something, and I don't know what it was. It's, you know, it was cortisone or something amphetamines of some type, but something that, that gave you a boost. So th- these guys would train a couple of days a week, give themselves a boost on the weekend and go out and be competitive. And some of them would do really well. Like this guy was a six foot four, had calves the size of my head, like he was a big guy. <laughs> and, and on a good day with, with a bit of juice, the guy could perform and – you know, there's no point racing if you're not going to be competitive. So how do you get competitive if you don't have time to train? So it was happening at lower levels. So when I – it was – I felt it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, I was either going to have to do it or struggle to be a winner, you know, struggle to win. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the Armstrong thing was just the pinnacle of years and years of just drugs and testing and different approaches and – and Armstrong, in my opinion, just – and you read books about it, he just perfected it. Here I was out of cycling for 10, 12 years and, I, you know, we knew he was on something because mm. he just – the body just cannot do what he, he was doing. And it just excessive domination, 
meant that he had he'd perfected the the drug approach and uh, that's not to say the others weren't on drugs there were other writers oh, yeah. he was writing with but he just perfected it to a point where he covered it up very well he's good and he's good and uh, but you've got to be a good writer you can't just yeah. take drugs and that makes yeah. a difference it's just the the edge between you and the other guy who's just as good as you so how tempted were you uh, it, it it became difficult i mean I, i'll never forget i'll never forget the one the first exposure was my second tier spanish team Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking the, these are battlers who will never ever race a big race in their lives potentially um and here i am racing with them i'm in a breakaway there's about eight or nine of us in this break come down a descent and there's a hard right a couple of guys crash i hit the back of them i go over Whoa. and i and i wipe myself out pretty bad <laughs> in fact i land on my elbow and smash it badly where or i couldn't pull on my handlebars <gasps> so Straighten the handlebar, straighten the, the, the seat, back on the bike, boom, get on, and we, we get back up to the brake. So I, one of them, I don't know whether one or two of them didn't disappear of the, of the brake, but anyway, here we are. There was about eight of us left with about 30K to go. My team was in the back. The team director comes up and says, how are you going? And I said, man, I'm a mess. I can't get out of my seat. I don't know how I'm going to sprint. You know, I can't get out of my seat to pull on the handlebars. And, uh, and he said, sit, sit. Stay back at the back of this group and uh, I'll bring the doctor up. So here I am, right, yeah, yeah, no worries. The doctor comes up and he says, what do you got, what do you got? He goes, what are you feeling? And, you know, talk him through it and he goes, okay, I've got something for you. And he, he comes, he leans over and he starts off with the magic spray, which is, which is an antiseptic numbing yeah. agent which, to take away the sting. But he's got a needle. And look, I don't know. Look, it could have been something harmless, but he said, take this it will take away – it will allow you to, 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 to ride. And I said, oh, no, 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 I think I'll be okay because I didn't know what he was – and I asked him a couple of times, what, what, what is it? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. it it's, oh. it's okay. It's legal. It's all okay. So anyway, I refused to take it. And so then he went back and then the director came up and he said, what, what are you doing? You're the only guy in our team in the break and you're, you're our only chance. And I said, look, I – I'll, I think I'll be okay. Let, you know, leave it with me. And, he, and, he, and I'll never forget, he, he looked me, he turned to me, he said, Alex, he said, don't you let me down. And I remember thinking, feeling like really uneasy and like what, what does he mean by that? Does he mean I have to win this or, or don't pull out? What, what? So anyway, he went back to the bunch and he effectively told my team to chase because they, they didn't think I was good enough to, to finish in the, in the group. And... Anyway, we get to the finish and I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? Um, I remembered the finish had a hard um, left-hand turn and then it was a couple hundred metres sprint to the finish. And so I decided I was just going to go into that corner first and just bury my head. So I came from the back, sprinted my head off as hard as I could. I hit the corner and it was almost like the tyres sliding, went around the bend, couldn't get out of the seat, so I just – Stayed in the seat and powered and didn't even look back. I don't know whether I took a length or two or ten lengths, but whatever, and just buried my head. I had one guy coming around me. I'm waiting for the rest of them and the finish line comes. So I finished second. Wow. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Damn. So uh, the the director comes and he's cheering and he's excited and I went, oh, wow. You know, and that was my first major win. Yeah podium finish in in europe and that was like in the second first month or so of being there and that, that to me that you know this you know i'm a little bit of a spiritual kind of guy that was my first 
experience of realising that I'm going to have to decide what I'm going to do about this drug thing mm. because if I've got these ambitions of turning pro and, you know, Tour de France kind of stuff, it's a part of the sport and I'm going to have to make a decision. So, yeah, that was my first point of decide, of having to, to, to really consider it. First of all, love the honesty behind yeah, that. Like that that's say. a raw story. I was When you were telling it, I felt like I was there. I was... I was watching, I was behind him like, yeah, Alex, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Say no to drugs. But it's funny because those types of moments are defining moments and they never come at an easy time. Damn straight. They're always down at crunch time when you need to make that decision right now whether you are going to take or not take. And I think it tells a lot about a person. It's, it's a hard decision, especially when you were competitive like you were and a, a team. It's not just you. You're not racing for your dad anymore. You're racing for a team and you've you've got to win. And you were able to make that decision at that moment. Nah, I'm good. I'm going to do this on my own back, my own two feet, and I'm going to struggle through. I'm going to go through that hurt locker, but I'll make it out alive. So that's, that's amazing. What a, what a story. That is, that is very inspirational. That's, I mean, but the way you're describing how the culture is within, you know, the cycling community of how, you know, drugs are just the everyday are. You know, it, it's hard to stand up and, you know, be honest in, in those kind of situations, especially when your director was like, don't, don't stuff this up. It goes to show, I guess, honesty is the best policy at the end of the day. And it's, it's good to see there's good people out there still like that, which is, which is well, amazing. And, th- and look, it's easy to, what's the word, to rationalise it because you know that the majority, you don't know, but you, you have really strong impressions that the majority of the people you're racing with are on something. Yeah. That's illegal. That's where I got to the point where I thought, well, eventually all I'm doing is it's a fair game. If I take it, it I'm not cheating. It's a fair game. Mm-hmm. And, again, there's some assumptions there because, you know, maybe no one else is on drugs. Maybe there's a, only a small group, if any. So, you know, from what I saw, my knowledge of what I, what I came out of there it was very clear that drugs was rampant. So these guys are trying to get pro contracts. Yeah. So the, it was rampant amongst them. And then when you turn pro, uh, there's no way that when you're pro, you can avoid the drug challenge. So it's, it's, it would have been a lifelong or, or a career decision. You had to make a call on it. So what was your choice okay. after that? After realising this is just not going to be conducive to my values and beliefs, what was your next move after that? You just think you can do it, right? So regardless of whether you decided, you know what, I'm not going to take drugs, I kept racing and with the intentions of continuing to to be competitive. What would have happened down the track, you know, I'm not trying to pretend I'm some, you know, angel. Uh, I actually think it would have been difficult for me to have not taken drugs. Very difficult. Like earlier on, you said you went on a humanitarian journey, so to speak. How long were you racing until that happened? And tell us a little bit more about that as well. So I started just before I was nine years of age and 19 and a half is when I, when I hung up the bike for a couple of years um, to take a break. So, yeah, about 10. I, I raced for 10 years and that was, you know, full on. Cycling was my life, you know. School never, never registered. You couldn't say that you were, a, you were a smarty at school? Nah? How, how was that? Smart Alec, yeah. But the, <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I was definitely not in the, um, you know, in the running for a scholarship. Put it that way. <laughs> so you've come back from your humanitarian, 
and you you haven't picked back up the bike. Not competitive, no. I came back and I just knew it inside me that I I had to make a call. You know, the other thing to consider is back then, if you didn't turn pro by the time you were 23, you didn't have a cycling career. Real, I mean, like a real cycling career. Yeah. You know, I was going to come back and you know, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, but, 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 and, but the other thing is that your career is usually done by 35. If you don't have any major injuries, by 35, rarely. So, so now the oldest guy in the, in the Tour de France now is about 40, 42. Mm-hmm. You don't get many that are too much older than 42. So the thing that got me as well is I, I went away, spent two years doing things for other people and thought about my life and thought, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back and race for 10 years? And then what do I do after that? And I just felt that going back to that sport with the drugs, with the, with the way the guys live their lives, hard to have a family. I, I, just, I just knew it was – I had to make a call and the call was to hang up the push bike and move on. You know what I love about Alex's story is I, I've had a conversation with Alex before in the past and I think it's amazing that he's gone from, a, from an athletic – um, life. He's gone from working hard on the bike, getting some amazing accolades that I would never have thought that I would even attain in my life. But he's gone from that. He's taken some time out for a humanitarian service. Where did you go? So I went to Western Australia. Western Australia and just helped the people out in Western Australia. And then he's come back. He said before that he wasn't a smarty at school. You know, you probably had more important fish to fry like riding. And then you've taken in a career in an area where you need to be smart. Like you need to be book smart. You need to be good at math. And, you know, would you like to tell us a bit about that? I won't take it off you. So, so yeah. So then I decided I was going to – I wasn't going to go back to cycling. So it's funny. I was in WA and I got these two letters sent from my parents with my contracts saying, when are you – planning to arrive in Europe and here I was in Perth in a suit walking around the streets um, you know doing other stuff and knowing I wasn't going to go back so and I never responded to those letters by the way I didn't have the guts to <laughs> your dad's sitting there waiting well, my son so they're saying when are you coming when are you coming but anyway so I, I got back I decided I was going to I looked at I wanted to be a physiotherapist I wanted to stay in the sporting game okay um, that didn't quite work out at the same time I was working in tax and finance and short story is I ended up doing a, an accounting degree and, and you know master's in finance and business and so I I took on an accounting business degree you know it's interesting it doesn't matter what you do in life and this is the other thing my father taught me but do it right work hard and be the best at it that you can you know my dad was a, was a tradie and he worked his guts out and he did really well in what he did he earned a lot of money doing what he did and that was the other thing. I looked at it and thought, you know what? Whether it's sport, whether it's a you know your, your studies, whether it's you know your relationships, do it right, go hard, give it everything you've got, and we're all capable of some pretty impressive things if we're willing to put the effort in. And and yeah, I started from the bottom. Like my HSC result was outward embarrassing. Came back, went to university, and took a career that I never never thought I was going to take. And um, it's been it's been a blessing in my life. Like. It's provided well and uh, and offered me way more than I would have ever expected, and arguably way more than I would have done if I had been even a top ranking pro cyclist. You know, I'm convinced I wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have been any better off. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been a, a pleasure having you on, on the podcast. I guess before you go, do you have a message for any aspiring athlete? And look, I'm no, I don't know if I'm qualified, but I'm, I'm from my personal experience, I feel that the elite in anything comes at a huge sacrifice of a lot of things, of the majority of things. If you want to be the best or amongst the best in the world in what you do, it will come at a sacrifice to your social life, to your family life, to a lot of other components of your life. And so just accept that and and, and recognise that that's a big part of being elite in whatever you choose to do. And and it's interesting because I look at my life now and I, I know that there's business opportunities or career paths that I could take, but I know the price I need to pay to make it and I'm not willing to do it because I'll need to sacrifice my relationships with my wife and my, my family. And so the only thing I would say is be aware that as exciting and as, as passionate as you are about what you want to do, reaching the top means you need to sacrifice a lot of other things which you may not be willing to sacrifice. Uh, and if you are, you know, good on you, go for it. You look at any, any athlete – who is the best of what they do, it comes at a huge cost in a lot of areas of their lives. So that's the reality of it. To be the best, you've got to have the desire and the, and the gut and you've got to have the, I don't know, I think you just got to be, a, you've got to be angry to win. You've got to be really aggressive to win and you, you've got to give up a lot of stuff. Well, there you go, guys. You've heard it from Alex. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. To be the best, sacrifice is eminent. Would you say that's kind of the motto of your life, so to speak? <laughs> I don't know about a motto. No, you know, a, a good friend once gave me the motto that I've gone on to live, live by, and that is, what would thou have from life? Pay the price and take it. And that's the case with every, everything and anything. If there's something that you want, that you value, that you see is going to be a value to your life, then you've got to pay a price. And I've done that. That's effectively been, you know, when I've seen something I've wanted, I've paid the price, whatever the price. And sometimes you've got to step back and decide whether it's worth the price you're going to have to pay because, you know, we're all capable of pretty amazing things. It's just are we willing to pay the price to take what it is we're after. Well, Alex, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, a privilege as well, should I say, to oh, thank you have you on. It's, it's great to hear your story of, of honesty or integrity sacrifice especially and you know just paying the price for what that would have from life so it's been great to have you on thanks again for coming on it's it's been great to have it's been you. Good. good good catching up with the young men yeah <laughs> it's been uh well hopefully everyone who's been listening has gotten something from this little chat we've had today it's been very inspirational am i right, am I right troy yeah no absolutely i would definitely pay some homage to the fact that if you do want something in life, you're not going to get it for free. You've got to pay a price. And that's something that I'm learning more and more every day. And just hearing your stories about your cycling career, how you were brought up, what you've been through and where you are today shows that exact thing that you have to sacrifice in order to receive the prize that you desire. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of The Off Cuts. This has been your boy, Willie G. This is Team Money. And, uh, and Alex, mate. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
like, why is he pointing at me? Why is he pointing? Is that right? Did I say the right thing? Yeah, you got it, mate. It's perfect. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Take care and peace.